The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast, where I, your host, Tyler, try to describe how much I love these books, despite the fact that we're not quite to the books that I love. And Greg, my co-host, shows up and tells me that the books we're reading are actually pretty good, or at least that's usually what he says. Greg, is that the message this week, or is it still dragging like it had been a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I think I think we're in a steady uh, pattern this week. I wouldn't say it declined uh, demonstrably. And, uh, you know, I'm sure you're excited that we're getting back to some uh, parent content. Um, hey, this seems silly, but well, we're this moment we're recording and there's this lull in culture, right? It's it's related to the strikes. There's like no good TV. There's yeah, there are a, just a weird little kind of month and a half where there are no good movies. So, hey, it's good to have the books and something to kind of fill our time. Now, I know you are enjoying the television show, so probably can't agree that there's not a lot of good TV right now. But uh, how's that going? Spoiler free. Spoiler free, it's going really great, although mostly spoiler free, this week and next, we are actually going to be reading two scenes that in the show were combined and brought in a book early. So TV show Mm. viewers, uh, you will see a few parallels coming in the next couple of weeks, particularly from episode five of the television show, which I guess was probably about a month ago if you're listening as we're releasing them. So almost kismet. We take those here. Uh, I don't have anything else really to add other than I thought these were three pretty good chapters, mostly because they were in my favorite character's head. Uh, Any last thoughts before we get into what I think we were saying right before we started to air was like some fun chapters, but I don't know that I have the most to say about any of them. Is, Is that your impression as well? Uh, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, you know, our old cliche of when we're plot heavy, there's not as much to talk about. And I think we've got a lot of plot across these three. Um, that doesn't mean I didn't like them. It just means, uh, you know, a little bit more action. So, uh, yeah, let's roll boo boo. Let's do this. I don't know how I feel about boo boo, mostly because that's what I call my dog. (laughs) (laughs) Let's roll boo boo. Sounds great. Listeners, write in and see every episode. That is what we're going to say now. That's how this works. (laughs) Chapter 33 within the weave. Uh, Perrin is writing down the road and notes an ancient cobblestone. Uh, They are in on the Lugard Road near Murindy, although technically they are still in Altara. He sees that there is a dog's print imprinted into the stone, and he smells sulfur but doesn't bring it up any further. They're pushing hard, but Perrin doesn't want to sleep deeply, despite the fact that he's extremely tired, and he recalls a couple of bad dreams he's had, including one that featured Egwene that is a callback to a previous chapter when Egwene was dreaming. Um, They pass through a number of villages on their travels. Uh, We learn that Perrin is keeping the wolves out of his head and all of the village they pass through seem to have some sort of oddity. He notes an entire village that was burned when all of the houses uh, fell apart outward rather than inward. Um, he notes that they uh, found a village that was saved by a spring being discovered and then another one where a well went dry or every well went dry. Another one where every argument flared up all at once and then another where all of the crops died but a bag full of gold was found for from Manatharin and it saved the village. Um, 
Perrin is kind of concerned about this and starts asking how the Perrin could do such evil. And Moraine's response is to basically say the Perrin, or sorry, that the pattern weaves both good and evil, and it doesn't really play favorites. The Dark One and the Creator are the ones who are really aligned with one side or the other. Um, they then entered the town of Remen, which Lan says has had an eventful day or two. Um, Loyal seems very pleased when all the people in the town recognize him as an Ogier rather than being afraid. Um, and as they get into town, uh, they note there is a tall man in a cage, and boys are throwing rocks at him, and Perrin thinks he looks familiar. Uh, once they get into the inn, the innkeeper greets them warmly, and then starts asking Moraine after what's happened, and then, I'm sorry, Moraine starts asking him after what's been going on in the town. He says that there are hunters for the horn who have been battling Aiel, and then that causes Perrin to immediately realize why he recognizes the man in the cage. It's because he looks like Rand, he is in Aiel. He then remembers Min vision that he was going to meet a an Aiel in the cage, and it would be very important. Um, and then he meets Lord Orban, the individual who claims that he and 11 others battled 20 Aiel and only lost six and killed most of them and captured one. Um, at this point, um, Lan starts to kind of question him about it and makes it clear that he doubts every one of this individual's claims. And then uh, Perrin notices that there is a woman who is staring at him, not at Moraine, not at the Ogier, but him. And he finds that odd as he leaves the common room. Um, this was a chapter that I think kind of captured a lot of fun little scenes effectively, but the sum of it almost feels like less than the sum of its parts, right? It's it's a glimpse into the travel chapter, which is why I don't have a ton to say about it. I'm curious if that was your impression as well, or if you were kind of grabbed by any of the little moments I feel like we get throughout it. Yeah, I liked the moment at the end where Lord Orban uh, claimed to be 6'4", 215 pounds. Uh, I really, uh, sorry, we don't do politics on this show, but, but, you know, if a politician who is clearly an overweight man claims to be 215 pounds, <laughs> I'll bullpucky on it. Uh, yeah, I, I think you largely captured this chapter's spirits. It feels like it was meant to get us into this village to have this you know what we're told is a portentous encounter and a kind of momentous moment in Perrin's story um if i were to take a lesson from the first half um it would be that i felt like it was an escalation of rand's powers right these are yeah. essentially taviran powers that that were being walked through but it seems to me like whereas before I, it felt like being taviran meant things bent a little in your direction now to steal the word for it it's like everything is warped around him um yeah. I, again we've talked before about the, I believe it's Newtonian gravity, but I'm not a physicist, where the object, the heavier the object is, it kind of pulls everything down. So I always had it explained as a taut cloth and then a very, very dense, heavy ball bearing would make a little funnel there. And it feels like Rand's funnel is kind of sucking more and warping more yeah. into his um his his wake and you know that also feels right because it's his literal wake. well i guess you can't say literal but you know the wake of a ship is the kind mm -hmm. of eddies and um you know uh the the currents that that fall fall behind it and this is rand's wake right he's passing through and we get these yeah. little eddies and these little dramas that are just churning in um, response to him having been present. So, so that is very compelling and interesting, but I don't know what to say other than like, Hey, I think he might be the dragon reborn. Yeah. And I think that's the big thing about the early section of this chapter is it's kind of fun little vignettes that make you think like, what are all of the things that we're not hearing about? And that's a fun little game to play. But once you're done playing that game, I think what you're left with is like, yeah, Rand is warping the pattern the way that we said he was going to 12 chapters ago. There's there's nothing really new here. Um, the other thing that I enjoyed about this chapter is I found it to be a really good excuse to get my book out and open up to the very first page and figure out where are they at on the map that we have. And so kind of tracing, OK, they are getting closer to Lugard, but they're along the dotted line border and they're near somewhere where there's a river you can kind of identify almost exactly where they are and how they're going to take that river dead south to Ilion and I just found that to be kind of the most intriguing part of this you've mentioned before I think we are both people who love a good map in a book and this felt like a go open up your map kind of moment
moment at the beginning of the chapter. So that was the other little bit of fun I had with it. Did you also experience that? Or are you now looking at your map for the first time and thinking, oh man, that's a smart idea, Tyler. You have to compliment me if that's what's happening. Uh, first of all, I would never say that. How dare you? Uh, second of all, I actually did open up my map at uh, while reading. And it what stuck out to me is nothing that we get the names of three or four villages. So I was kind of looking for those. Yeah. We do get the name of the river. So I was able to place us along that river, the uh, Menetherinel. It's, it's I think like it's Drell, I think. Yeah, but yeah. Drell. Uh, um, and so I was able to kind of place us there, but, um, you know, kind of it caused this moment when I was reading uh, yesterday morning where I was like, you know, it's it's striking that we've been using the same map the whole time. And um, yeah. I don't know the publication history, so I don't know if the map was there in the first edition, first book, or if yep. it was added later and adjusted. Um, but I will say, you know, oftentimes in a fantasy series like this, we would get a second map or a different insert. You know, I actually, I'm thinking of the Game of Thrones opening credits where they change yeah. what cities and, and sections they focus on in a given season. Actually, they changed like episode to episode Epis depending yeah. on what plot lines were getting picked up on. And so I kind of uh, had a moment yesterday morning where I was sitting there being like, oh, you know, I'd, I'd kind of like a little zoom in. But then I'm like, well, it's actually impressive that all the most important things were laid out from the beginning of, you know, my read through this book, it was at the first uh, page of my first book. So, um, so there's, it, you know, it, it kind of works both ways, but yeah. it was interesting to think like, you know, we're not getting a lot of change to this map. Yeah. To the best of my knowledge, the, uh, the map is exactly the same in the first edition as it was in the final book. So um, actually a lot of readers who were kind of doing the book as we went almost since that map never changed, took it as like a, uh, cities on the map bingo where it was like which one is going to be the last one to show up because robert jordan couldn't possibly have put 17 cities on the map and then only taken us to 16 i forget if that happened or not actually and won't tell you even if i did remember but that i think you're right there's something about the fact that that map never changes that it, it almost a like you're saying it's almost disappointing you're not getting to see exactly where they are at any given time but i almost like that feeling of like okay can i triangulate where they are it feels more like reading an old map and i think that that kind of works for me um once we kind of come out of that like here are 18 villages and the random things happening in them we get kind of an interesting um Heron Moraine conversation where he asks her, he seems almost worried, like, how is Rand doing so much evil in his wake? And Moraine gives this really interesting, almost like philosophical answer about what is right and what is wrong and what the weave wants or does. Um, that felt very like Ishmael in the old school, uh, like Dick, not Dickens, Moby Dick, uh, the one that you like. It seemed like something you'd want to talk about. <laughs> Say things about it. I'm I'm sitting here quietly so that you can uh, play literature scholar. So, uh, <laughs> yes, I had this. Uh, I I actually this may be a first, or it's at least a very rare occurrence. I dog-eared that uh, page because I'm like I I feel like if there's anything here to talk about, we should talk about it. So we don't read actual text uh, enough. Uh, yeah. That's me criticizing both of us. Me. So um, I will say here's. Here's this great line from Moraine. So Moraine was silent for a time, warming her hands. Finally, she spoke while staring into the flames. The creator is good, Perrin. The father of lies is evil. The pattern of age, the age lace itself is neither. The pattern is what is. The wheel of time weaves all lives into the pattern, all actions. A pattern that is all one color is no pattern. For the pattern of an age, good and ill are the warp and the wolf. Uh, and I'm not an expert on warp and woof, but as I understand them, those every are the kind of ebb and flow, right? Every time, you, every time you say woof, I am going to laugh. I know that's probably the accurate term, <laughs> but it, it's just funny to me every single time. That was actually my only star in this section. You said it was very important and we should talk about it. I just wanted to talk about how silly warp and woof sounded. Uh, <laughs> but I do think there's something really 
these are this is one of those moments in this book that I have a really hard time with because it is simultaneously interesting to think about and also bears absolutely no impact on the actual story that we care about, right? Like to some <laughs> degree, understanding the cosmology of the wheel is irrelevant because it doesn't matter if it's foredestined or being woven as we go. We just care what the characters do. And so that's kind of mm-hmm. where I get stuck in discussions like this is I think it's interesting. I think it's great world building. I'm glad the characters are thinking about it. But I, as a reader, don't get too much out of sections like this. Dear listeners, we finally found Tyler's equivalent to Greg reading about our dreams. Mm. Tyler's is cosmology. He can't find the meaning there. Wow. All right, mark it down. Episode 375. We finally, I don't know. That's just what it feels like. We are uh, actually closing in on 100 relatively quickly. Oh, all right. All right. Uh, just feels like 375. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think I did find this probably then more compelling. Um, what stuck out is the age lace is new to this book, right? We kind of yeah. got that level up at the beginning of this that, the wheel is weaving a pattern, but then across all of, uh, and the, correct me if I'm wrong, the age lace is across all the different times we've spun around the wheel, but also all the different layers, right? That was part of how they talked about the parallel dimensions. I, I think that is, right? I think that is accurate of the way that that idea was introduced to us. And more and more as the series goes on, I think the age lace will just be used as a phrase for any weaving of either lives or worlds. So I don't want to mm. kind of be implying that that phrase only applies to like multi-world weaves the way we were talking about at the beginning of the book. But you are remembering, right? That's the way it was kind of initially phrased. Um, And so it felt like, well, now that it's been introduced once, all the characters are going to talk about it. Yeah. And then the next piece of that, and, and it's not the first reference to the creator and the uh, Lord of Lies. Yeah, she Prince says of Father lies. of Lies, but I think that, that's just another term for the Dark One. And that felt very Christian to me, right? Yeah. I, I believe that's a name for Satan. So, um, you know, as we are tracing these different influences, it doesn't often feel overtly Christian, certainly not as much as saying like C.S. Lewis, obviously, or something yeah. like that. But there is here, you know, a way in which that that felt like it it followed those traditions. Um, the last thing I'll say is so I um I was I was raised in a, a Protestant Christian household and I went through confirmation. And I always remember our first confirmation um class, which is where you decide you're gonna become a member of the church and and you go through classes to learn. The the priest ended, you know, like two minutes before the end of the the session with like, okay, and so that's like the schedule. Any questions? And uh, a girl in my confirmation class, I actually think it might have been my cousin, but I I won't pin this to her. Raised her hand and was like, yes. Yeah, so, uh, if God is good, why is there evil in this world? And the <laughs> the priest like paused for a minute and was like, oh, like, well, I I kind of just meant like did you guys get enough snacks or do you understand we're meeting every other Tuesday? But, uh, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's tackle this and gave like a, a three minute, like, you know, exegesis on like why, why there could be evil in a a world created by a benevolent God. And, um, I, I mean, and again, I'm not pinning that on my cousin necessarily, but I respect the hell out of the move. Like it it was maybe not the right time, but it was like, you know, if we're going to do this, let's, let's do this. Let's ask the hard questions. So this felt to me a little bit like Perrin making that move. And and I yeah. actually kind of like Maureen's answer in the cosmology of this universe. But, you know, I I think the idea that there's no pattern with only light is a simple kind of encapsulation of what, as I understand, we, we don't have our our theologian friend on. Um, but um, as I understand the way a lot of, uh, you know, Christianity and other religions would answer that question is, you yeah. know, essentially that there has to be darkness to prove the light or, you know, to let us have the chance to act in the light, we need darkness. And so, um, and, you know, all that, if you just took a little nap on my, like Greg's random backstory corner, um, it just means, Hey, parent is a, 18 year old asking 18 year old questions as well. So it works on that kind of basic level of, you know, I I enjoy teaching college freshmen because they are trying to figure out the world and they ask questions that seem silly, but are really profound and really important to them. And, And I thought this represented that well. 
Well, and I think that this is something that we see in this chapter. And also, I think the next one is Karen seems much more open to just like having an honest conversation with Moraine than Rand or Matt seemed to when they were traveling with her. And so this feels like a very different dynamic and it feels like a more mature dynamic to me, right? Just being willing to ask for help when you need it is not a thing most 18 year olds are capable of. And so I feel like see, see also our teaching, but go yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is why I love Perrin though, right? He's the character who just wants to have a conversation and sometimes isn't that better than spending 45 minutes planning the lie you're going to tell Every D&D player ever, I'm talking to you. Um, we can move <laughs> a little bit forward in the chapter, I think. Um, the next kind of big moment that I had was I thought that all of the introduction of the eight interesting things in this town was kind of fun. And, you know, there was, you know, a lot of kind of dynamic stuff going on. But to me, the most exciting part of it all was for some reason seeing Lan's reaction to it. He seemed like hmm. almost salty about what was going on. And like he immediately picked up on the fact that Orban is just a blowhard. And there was a lot of kind of like fun little subtle land moments in this chapter that I thought worked really well well and that continued into the next chapter as well um did you also single out the random character who didn't have many lines or was that just me uh i definitely thought about a lot him a lot next chapter but yeah. I, I think you're right to say it's the same mood and uh attempting a movie reference for a movie i haven't actually seen i think it's danny glover in lethal weapon right like i'm too old for this yeah expletive uh and and it, it's the kind of like, I, I think when you are the level Lan is, mm -hmm. like, a guy like Orban is going to run you, rub you especially the wrong way. But it's just like, he's seen it all and he's tired of it all. And his concerns are, how much gold is this going to cost me? How little sleep am I going to get? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I guess I'm stealing a little from next, next chapter for whatever reason, when I read him being so annoyed, mm -hmm. I was like, is this, this is still the guy who's like in love with naive. Like it just, yeah. it, and I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just like, I think, you know, we're now a year ish since he yeah. was like in love and sneaking uh quiet moments with her. And now it's like, Oh, he's, you know, he's, he's been on the road a long time and I think it's getting to him. No, and I think that's a really good read. And if we're thinking about Lan as kind of being worn down by all of this, like, constant pressure and having to, you know, kind of be constantly the one searching and looking and, you know, he's he's out ahead every day. I think he's just putting in more work than everyone else in the group. And then that, to me, is kind of contrasted by Perrin, who in this chapter almost seems relaxed is the word I want to use, right? Like a bunch of crazy things are happening around him and he just seems like very like calm amidst all of it. And it seems like the only thing that breaks that calm is at the very end of the chapter when he identifies a woman who is looking at him. And I think there are two things here, right? One is we're obviously introducing a new character, this woman. But then two, I think there's something really kind of intriguing about how Perrin's mind works that he isn't phased at all by a lot of chaos around him. But as soon as even not chaotic things focus on him, that's what kind of throws him off his game. Yeah, um, it's kind of a funny thing, but it feels to me like a person who is used to being the side character. <laughs> and in this particular moment, he's becoming the main character and yep. in this thread of the plot or whatever. And, you know, that obviously is informed by the fact that we are reading a book, um, but it does feel like there are like I know people who act that way. I have friends yeah. who are like, yeah, I'm the side character. I don't I don't lead the charge. I just follow along. And in this moment, it's like, wait, why would somebody be interested in me? Because yeah. I'm you know, I'm not that interesting. Uh, and, you know, I, I think Moraine gives us some reasons to <clears throat> consider next chapter as well. Yeah. That might be a play. Um, yeah, and it it again. I think we've used this analogy before, but this felt like your D and D party entering a tavern, and you're just kind of taking stock of who's there. Yeah. And I was thinking, like, well, yeah, I would go ask my question of the innkeeper because he seems to really flow with information. Um, he, she, he? I believe he. I forget. 
I believe he. Uh, I would definitely not go engage these people over at the the hunters uh, yep. because I have secrets I want to hide from them, and they just seem awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the woman is the little mystery that the DM's like, no, this is the actual plot you need yeah. to care about, and. Uh, please pay attention to her and we will develop this in uh, next week's session. Don't don't act like you would talk to someone and in Greg, the entire party would sit silently for five minutes while I decided what plot we would do next. Uh, I don't have anything. Well, I, I need to tip. Topic. I need to tip the, the, uh, the listeners into our D and D world, which is we had a great D and D session on Saturday where Tyler had prepared a great, I assume combat where we would fight these, uh, knights on giant birds and they looked awesome and it was he had miniatures ready to go he was all ready to go and some random member of our party i don't even remember which was like um let me try to like negotiate with them and then rolled really well and we negotiated our way out of the con- <laughs> our combat and that was the end of it and like tyler was instantly disappointed i'm gonna admit i was disappointed i'm like yeah. i just wanted to fight that's the be- that's why we play this game why are we trying to avoid this and uh, it was a very funny moment. So, so to to laugh about the plots not taken, that immediately comes yeah. to mind. Of, uh, oh, uh, okay, uh, you don't want to do the fun thing. All right, uh, more walking through the desert. It is. Let's do this. Uh, and at least the one thing Robert Jordan gives us is that these are characters who immediately ignore all of the fun plot hooks in the inn. And then we get chapter 34, where Perrin goes to all of the fun plot hooks outside of the <laughs> inn. So in chapter 34, a different dance, Perrin is thinking about the woman who is staring at him while the innkeeper is kind of droning on about the news of the day until Moraine questions him when he talks about a dragon in Gaelden. Uh, he clarifies that he was not talking about a false dragon, but rather someone who was proclaiming the dragon, who Lan and Perrin immediately recognize must be Mazima, one of the Shinarans who is left behind at the beginning of the book. Once Moraine realizes this, um, she immediately is upset at Mazima, slams her door, and then the innkeeper takes them throughout the rest of the inn. Uh, they have an ogier bed, with which Loyal is extremely happy about, and then Perrin literally sits quietly in his room and thinks about his problems for a while. Um, eventually, Perrin goes and talks to Loyal for a little bit more before he then decides to get out thinking about Min's viewing and uh, the fact that he has seen an Aiel in a cage. Um, Perrin um, kind of, he stops and thinks about regretting not stopping the boys throwing rocks and then he goes into Moraine's room. Um, She is in her robe. I wrote scandal in all uppercase letters because that's how he seems to approach this. Um, And then he asks whether it was Rand who caused all of the chaos in this town. Moraine Moraine says she hopes to find out uh, when Lan returns and then also says that she has a choice to make about whether they are going to go over Lan to Tyr and try to continue catching up with Rand or whether they are going to take the river and take the boats, which will take a longer distance, but will get them faster. Um, eventually, um, Perrin asks Moraine about um, whether or not she can send dark friends because he thinks he might have identified one. And this is when Moraine, as you alluded to, says, no, I don't think that woman is a dark friend. I think she just thinks you're attractive. Um, and then uh Perrin leaves, uh, noting that he didn't ask Moraine anything about the Aiel in the cage. Um, Perrin then leaves the inn, hearing Orban telling his story yet again, even more exaggerated this time, and then he approaches the cage. He sees no one around, but feels like he's being watched, and then, after judging that the cage is really low quality, he lowers the cage, opens it, and lets the Aiel out. Um, He introduces himself as Gaul of the Shardad Aiel and he is a stone dog. Um, he calls Perrin a wetlander, saying that he is from a place that has rivers and more water than he has ever seen before. And when he's asked why he is uh, west of the mountains, he says that he is searching for he who comes with the dawn. Perrin assumes that this must be Rand and tells him that he should be looking in tear. At this point, uh, the Aiel uh, Gaul begins to uh, get ready to leave when a large number of white cloaks show up. 
Gull, who doesn't have a weapon, kills seven or eight of them, and Perrin takes care of the other couple. And there are now a bunch of dead Aiel. Gull says, or sorry, not a bunch of dead Aiel, a bunch of dead white cloaks. Gull says that this is the second time he's had to kill a bunch of wetlanders and notes that there weren't 20 of his people fighting Orban. There were actually just two. And then he leaves, and Perrin turns around and sees the woman who was staring at him before. Uh, he then she runs away. He then sees Lan, and Lan is like, "Oh, everyone's dead. We need to leave now." So, action-heavy sequence, which was just adapted on the television show, but nothing else here other than maybe an intriguing conversation with Moraine. Is this the slowest of the three chapters or the fastest of the three chapters? Because I think I'm torn between those two answers. Uh, it felt long when I read it, but again, uh, listeners should always remember that I like am probably also reading and then suddenly a toddler comes and screams at me because, you know, a stuffed animal has a dot of mud on it or something. And and so I get confused and scared and then just retreat into my book again. But um, uh, what was funny to me, what stood out the most is I immediately was like, oh, we saw this on the show. And then I paused and thought like, oh, no, wait, that's entirely different. So mm -hmm. there's a scene, small, minor. So uh, there's a scene in the first season of the television show where two characters cut down an Aiel who has been killed and yeah. bury him. And it was one of my favorite scenes in the first season. Um, and so I was like, oh, it's that scene. We got there. And then I was like, oh, wait, that's entirely different people yeah. in an entirely different place. So while uh, they may have been reminiscent, um, you know, it was not at all the same moment. So, um, I mean, where did I really go with this? I was like, got it. The Aiel still are looking for Rand. And um, it just yeah. seemed like a fresh reminder you know, like Game of Thrones would mention the White Walkers at the wall every once in a while. It's like, don't forget this plot's coming. Like yep. we have this other set of uh, issues that that need to be dealt with. I still think that feels like a book four or book five thing, not mm. a like by the end of this book, the idea will come. Um, but I think something that I'm struggling with, and I don't think this is a bad struggle, but something I'm struggling with is I have to remember part of what we're seeing here are all the biases based on the fact that the Aiel were the enemies in the last yeah. war, the war that um, Rand's father fought and that led to him finding Rand. Um, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, and so to think about how the Aiel, every time they appear, feel like allies, right? If they're looking yeah. for Rand, they feel like, yep, they're on our side. Don't worry about it. And yet, you know, they were the what we see here is is a bias against them. Right. Mm -hmm. They these people can get rounds of drinks bought for them by saying they killed more and more of them and putting this one in the cage to torture. So um, I think I have trouble tracking how these pieces are all going to interact. Yeah. Um, but there's no way I didn't feel like a righteous hell. Yeah, buddy. Uh, when uh parent cut him down and said like, I just don't like people in cages. Um, yeah. you know, that felt to me, I'm uh, my movie watching project for the fall is I'm trying to see all the Harrison Ford movies I've never seen. And that felt like a Harrison Ford line to me, right? Like yeah. a little lopsided grin of like, I just don't like people in cages. Uh, not as old and grizzled as that. that Cause Matt's young or sorry. That was young, solid but. work on that accent. I just need to say, <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the interesting thing that stood out for me in this chapter, because I think you're right, this sort of like reintroduction to the Aiel for the third or fourth time is it, it's such an interesting kind of cultural point, right? We see how the town is reacting and how Orban is reacting. And then just by how Lan it responds to Orban, we knew something was up with how many Aiel he was claiming before we even got the numbers Um and if we're kind of learning, as you're saying, all of these like almost seemingly contradictory, how do they piece together kind of pieces of information, there was something that really weirded me out in this chapter that I'm still trying to piece together. And maybe you can help me with this. What is up with Moraine in this chapter? She 
doesn't notice that Mazima is the one that they are talking about, despite the fact that Perrin and Lan get it. And I can just see Moraine doing the, like, Michael from the good place. Like, oh, my God, Perrin got it? This is a real low point, guys. (laughs) And then just a little bit later on, when Perrin goes to ask her questions about what's going on with the pattern, um, she immediately responds, not just by answering his question, but volunteering unasked information about where they're going next. And those just feel like very unmoraine things to miss obvious clues and then give up information with no prompting. And so I'm really kind of curious if you have a read with what's going on with Moraine in this chapter, because I think the Aiel mystery is one that, as you say, is kind of like a wait a book or two kind of mystery. But this feels like a character who we've been with for most of their adventures, this book. So I, I, maybe I'm missing what's causing her to be so off at this point. Um, I mean, I definitely read it as she is working on the next problem, right? I mean, and, and we see Lan doing this, right? Lan is yeah. so busy worried about where they're going next and how they're doing this. I think um I think Moraine is unsettled by how uh quickly Rand is moving and the yeah. actions he's taken, right? The fact that he broke away, it's not that I I think she ever thought she controlled him, but she thought she was alongside him. Yeah. And from the moment he broke away, it's like she's playing catch up. And so I think, you know, especially where she's like, oh, dude, you're just you're just a cutie. Like, don't worry yeah. about it. The girl's looking at you because she's because she's attracted to you. Move along. And uh, it just felt like she's so busy with like the next three levels of problems that she can't be concerned with the day to day problems here. Um, and, you know, the weirdness of like I, I even she's kind of undressed as he walks yeah. in and then he's blushing and all that. I was like. There was something kind of old Hollywood about that. Like, yeah, we don't have nudity, but like we'll show a bare shoulder. Uh, I've also been watching movies from like the 30s lately. And it's like, here's a, a beautiful lady behind a dressing screen. And like, yeah. there's her shoulder like, ooh, uh, ooh. And it felt like one of those types of moments where you're like, uh, you know, implying a lot. But, um, you yeah. know, so I I took Moraine as being there. She's working on which okay. I mean, she says, which which way are we going to go to chase Rand? Do we take the easy path or the, the mm-hmm. faster path? Um. I think that's worry about him being in tear, 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 tear. Uh, long, I, she doesn't want him to be in tear a long time before she gets there. Uh, yeah. The longer he's in tear without her there, the more danger they're all in. So um, yeah. I think that's where she, her mind is. And as she's discussing the kind of fear that Rand gets ahead of her, she actually drops what feels like kind of a juicy clue. She doesn't say, I don't know how Rand could be staying ahead of us. Instead, she says, it almost feels like Rand has discovered traveling, but if he had, he'd already be in tear. And that kind of, I feel like, is a moment where Moraine is accidentally letting slip. She knows of the existence of something called traveling. And as a reader, I'm like, what is that? Why aren't we in her head? Please tell me. So that was another moment that got me kind of a little bit psyched amid what in general I think is is a very internal chapter, right? We get a couple of scenes of Perrin sitting on beds alone. Uh, Moraine is clearly in her own head in this early section of the chapter. I, I think it's, it's a very psychological section of the book in some way, which is why one of the moments that I really loved is when Perrin just like took a moment to feel bad about not stopping the kids from throwing rocks at the Aiel. Because that just felt like a like remarkably relatable moment from a you know high fantasy story to me being like yeah sometimes I wish I had yelled at kids too. Yeah, that is very much the kind of regrets you have kind of after high school where you are like yeah like I don't know I I always remember one time that my friends were kind of bullying a kid on the playground and it's like I think everybody turned out fine my kid my friends weren't particularly nasty i think that guy has had a long and successful life but you're like why why didn't i intervene in that why did we like all just go along with making fun of this poor kid and uh you know so so it does feel natural and very human and that works certainly i agree i have nothing else to say about the not amazing badass parts of this chapter so we should probably jump forward to gall and a fight scene that 
you should probably say you want to see on television. Greg is holding up his finger like he doesn't want to talk about the awesome fight scene. So whatever. one thing I just want to mention from the early half of the book that I liked <laughs> and felt really bad about is Loyal being excited about his bed. Oh, He's like, yeah. Look at my bed. It's tree singing like I and he says he could do that pretty well. And I, I like this, you know, yeah. it's a little like the ants who can, you know, herd the forest. But the idea that you can essentially woodwork by singing it well and training the plants like that's yeah. great. And that's awesome. 100%. Do I think that's a major plot point? Not at all. But I, I found it very endearing. Uh, and when Baron just doesn't care. I was like, oh, buddy, yeah. I care. Like. It is a nice bed. Good for you. It's thousands of years old. I'm excited for you. I, I'm not allowed to um, criticize anyone for interrupting me for more loyal facts. So that was a solid <laughs> addition. Um, I mean, really, the only thing I have down here is just like it was great. And, yeah. you know, especially again, as as I'm trying to track how the Aiel will interact with the politics we've seen. It's like they're natural allies. They hate the the white cloaks. They seem on the right side though I have a limited understanding of the fight before, but you know, where my mind goes is it feels a little bit like um, this is the, the, like they're the native Americans. Right. And so they lost the last war as the colonists took over the country and raised their cities, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean they were wrong. Um, And when people say they were barbaric, it's like, yeah, but what were you doing first? Right. Like, I feel like that's a better uh, understanding of them. That is, I think a very accurate depiction. If only the native Americans had absolutely annihilated the settlers in the West, right? You've got to remember Mm. the Aiel didn't lose the Aiel war. The Aiel won the Aiel war and then walked away instead of conquering anything. But otherwise, Mm. I think that metaphor and how they're being perceived and how they're treated West of the wall, I think that's exactly right. But yeah, the, the Aiel are good enough warriors that they wrecked the rest of the world and then became the sort of like cultural and social pariahs in a way that I think you're describing. Nice. Uh, and so then I loved the, I mean, I like killing white cloaks, right? Yep. <laughs> in real life or uh, in the book, uh, always good to kill some dudes in white cloaks. Uh, sorry. It, it, I don't know if our podcast can sponsor violence <laughs> in that way. Uh, and so the action was awesome. And the way in which it's like the, the girl, we we find out this chapter the girls saw it all kind of yeah. go down um the woman so that was all intriguing to me absolutely i think the only other thing that really stood out to me is uh when gall introduces himself we get like three or four what i feel like are kind of like dangling bits of lore right in the same way we've talked before about star wars has those moments where you're like okay what's that word they just use and why are we never going to mention it again in three more movies um things like he is a stone dog. I need to know what that means, right? Uh, <laughs> why is th- their chosen one called he who comes with the dawn? And is Perrin right in assuming that he who comes with the dawn is Rand? Uh, there's a bunch mm-hmm. of like little details like that. I think at one point he refers to the Aiel Waste as the threefold land. And that's the kind of thing that immediately makes me go, now there's three pieces of information I don't know. So I'm, I'm just kind of curious if, if any of that little bit of like uh, world building without exposition worked for you the same way that it did for me. Absolutely. I was really intrigued by that. I, I don't know that I even questioned much that it is Rand. I was just like, it's Rand because we know he's half Aiel and or all Aiel and, and so on. Um, the one thing that I thought was really surprising in that bundle was that so many of their prophecies also involved tear yeah that it would come specifically to that city for them as well and so while again you could say well that means it's all coming to a head at the end of this book i'm like oh no that just will affirm to them in this book that rand is the one and then they will seek him out so um you know uh rand is feeling more and more like um a blade is called a daywalker, right? Like somebody from one side who can associate with the other side, like that kind of figure. And, um, you know, while his origins were always a bit mysterious, I feel like this is, you know, 
just a cool bit of mythology. I yeah. guess it's a little bit of Dune too, right? Like yeah. he's of one people, but but accepted in the the desert folk. I, um, I think the Fremen better prepare are actually... for that movie. <laughs> Again, sorry. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think the Fremen are actually also a really good corollary for the Aiel, right? Like yeah. a nomadic desert kind of warrior people who have this, you know, connection to the land in spite of it being inhospitable. Yeah, really good comparison that you didn't actually make. We both get half credit on that one. Uh, unless you have <laughs> anything else, I have nothing else to say about this chapter, but we're not quite ready to get ready for the next chapter. We have a little ill-advised discussion of visual media on a non-visual podcast to talk about. Uh, yes. Yeah, so an icon that we've actually seen before, we saw it last week, but decided not to include it. Uh, so the opening of chapter 35 in my mass market paper back, that's page 378, a kind of standard icon, uh, yeah. a mix of black and white, um, something that looks like it could be the pattern on a uh, dress my crazy kooky aunt would wear or something uh -huh. like that. Um, and so we have uh, what appears to be essentially ocean waves and a kind of repeated pattern that alternates between black and white. I would suggest to show like waves out across a distance, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm tipping my hand that I know this is a boat chapter. So it, and yeah. it appeared last time on a boat chapter. So it feels very much like uh, water. But in terms of icons we've looked at, I would note that it is entirely within its frame which yep. is kind of a rarity uh that a lot spread out and i would note that the frame itself has a heavy black frame yeah. on it despite the central image being pretty yeah i think exactly balanced between yeah. the two colors no i think that's right and and i had the same thought about the frame kind of adding a little bit of darkness to it and then i think to some degree my big complaint about this image is it's too simple and too obvious, right? My, the entirety of the notes that I wrote down uh, to prepare for our discussion of this was exclusively a how I met your mother joke. I just wrote down boats, boats, boats. Like that's all there is to say <laughs> about this image. It's generic water, which gets us to a generic understanding of what it means. And it's, that's what it is. Sometimes chapters are on boats. And when that happens, we use the boats, boats, boats symbol. That's, that's all we've got here. I, I am, Closing in, as I've been noting to readers since last summer when we first began book one, I'm reading the Jack Aubrey, Patrick O'Brien book series, which is 21 books. And Ooh. you could sum up this entire series by just saying boats, boats, boats. Uh, so I'm there and I'm I'm here for it. As I flexed last time, I'm like, yes, talk to me about the top gallon. I know all about it. Uh, so. <laughs> Uh, not, and I mean, while there is a boat here, it isn't actually as nautical a chapter. It, it yeah. takes place on a boat, but it could be almost anywhere else. So, so let's find out what happened on a boat, but could have happened anywhere else in chapter 35. I'm on a boat. The Falcon. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> how, how do you only take, make your joke once and it somehow works better than my, <laughs> like, let's lead into the how I'm, I hate you. <laughs> Chapter 35, the Falcon. Perrin rushes through the inn having gross, and he is hearing the same grossly exaggerated story again, although now he knows exactly how grossly exaggerated it is. Um, Perrin almost stops to admire the bed and also the chair in Loyal's room. It's a little bit heartbreaking, but he then needs to tell Loyal we are going to leave immediately and gives him an oddly vague response when asked why. He simply says white cloaks. Um, they uh, make their way down through the back door. There's a spit dog, which is awesome. Uh, and then Perrin tries to convince the stable hands to stick to saddle their horses. They do not, but Lan gives them gold and they immediately do. Um, and Loyal then expresses his excitement to be out on uh, an adventure again and talks about how he needs to capture this feeling for his book. Um, Lan then uh, leads them to the to the pier he finds them the next ship that is going to be leaving and after a quick negotiation gets them all on board very quickly the ship begins to push off but the woman who was staring at Perrin earlier leaps on board and enters into her own negotiation to get passage quote as far as that one there and points at Perrin um 
she then uh, says she is assuming they are going to Ilion um, and that she didn't tell the town what happened between Perrin and Gaul and that all of the town assumes that Gaul did everything himself. Um, it, he, she does note, however, that Orban is actually an excellent fighter and she has seen him defeat four people at once. Um, she says that she is a hunter for the horn uh, and that she originally was going to go looking with Orban in the Forest of Shadow, which is south of the two rivers. Rivers, but then she says that she actually thinks the horn is going to be a Menethrin, and Perrin tries to kind of tempt her away from following him by suggesting that the horn actually is in Menethrin. She decides she is not going to follow that at all because, as she says, she thinks that she is going to find the horn by following the odd trail, and that is what uh, Perrin and his friends represent. Um, she then says that she calls herself Mandarb after being asked. Uh, Perrin laughs because, of course, that is Lan's horse's name. She then says she is named Zareen, and when Perrin says that that name fits her, she flinches and immediately gets mad and then she says she will call herself Fayil, which means Falcon, which immediately makes Perrin worry about the vision that Min had seen of a falcon and a hawk on his shoulders. So, this is the shortest of our three chapters. I have the least to say about it, but maybe my favorite of the three, just because I love new characters and especially ones with a little bit of mystery around them and that i think is what we're getting here a bunch of kind of odd non sequiturs about a character that we're meeting for the first time um what was your take on the falcon and its titular character uh yeah i, I would say i don't have a lot to say as well right fallout from the last chapter uh i did you shouted out the kind of endearing moment when loyal's like okay <laughs> like, like yeah. we'll just move on and then and tries to kind of rally and get excited about this new life. I don't know. It it did between that and the one before, I think it naturally makes me feel like Loyal's getting a little bit lost in this shuffle. Mm -hmm. He also had to sit out the final battle of the last book. So I'm starting to have some slight questions about why he's here. Um, but trust that there will be a reason eventually. Um, and then, you know, uh boy it sounds like ratings are getting a little low we've got some online message boards telling us we have uh too many male characters let's throw in a badass new woman hunter and let her bring a new dynamic and we'll just we'll have her uh appear during may sweeps but the new season will really be about her it's kind of how this feels uh, I think that basically sounds about right, right? Fael is showing up out of nowhere at a point where this book needs just a little bit of a pick-me-up. And the one thing that I think is really interesting to me is that we, by the time we get to this chapter, this is the third time that we have Perrin describing what I'm just going to call her Fael looks like. Right. Uh, in the first of our three chapters, he describes her as kind of a mysterious woman. He describes her nose. He's trying to figure out whether he thinks that she is kind of like beautiful or whether her nose is a little too large. You know, he's kind of observing her kind of neutrally. And then by the time we get to this chapter, Perrin, it almost seems like he's deciding, like, I'm not really worried about this girl. I kind of like the look of her. And he goes, I, I think the weird like transition that happens is he goes from not knowing whether her nose is too big to deciding that it's just right for her face. But that feels almost monumentous when you get almost the same description three times a row in three chapters. So I thought this was kind of an intriguing introduction. Although, as you say, it's like, yeah, we need another character now. Let's just toss this one in there. Uh, definitely. So podcast crossover moment, my uh, movie podcast I'm on somewhat frequently is uh, anticipating the Oscar movies, which, of course, this year involves uh, Bradley Cooper donning a uh, prosthetic nose to play Leonard Bernstein, which in no way resembles the real life Leonard Bernstein. And there's been charges of anti-Semitism and then Leonard Bernstein's estate had to come out and offend, uh, de sorry, defend the choice and say they're cool with it, even though it's wow. not what he looked like. It's a really bizarre set of nose discourse. So on that podcast, we've been returning to the refrain from Ocean's Eleven, which is Linus, Matt Damon's character, saying the nose plays. And so as I read this chapter, I thought Perrin is having this debate and then he's just like, the nose plays yeah. uh it it works it's it's going on so uh you know and all of what you just said is also me thinking about how 
Um, I do think that it's naturally like this is the pairing off, right? And, mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of fantasy series get to this point where eventually you like all of our young, attractive people need young, attractive people to, yeah. to pair off with. And it's just like, you know, especially where this is faded from men and, you know, sitting on your shoulder the way, I mean, we're both married men. That's what we ask our wives to do is sit on our shoulders. Uh, <laughs> like some weird chicken fight we do. That's on what Saturdays are for, um, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, so it just feels like okay, we've gotten the pairing off. So it, it felt like a, a meet cute, and we'll go through the stages of we hate each other, we love each other, let's fight to the end together. So I'm I'm here for it. That's not yeah. at all dismissive, but it was just kind of like, yep, let's check the box. Here's the character that he's going to end up with. Totally. And if we're kind of tracking characters who are kind of new to the story and where do they end up in our estimation, I feel like we get just enough detail about Orban that it makes sense to kind of check in on him as it seems like we are now sailing far, far away from him because Robert Jordan loves to conserve characters and he's probably going to come back at some point. I actually can't remember whether he can. I'm just assuming he does. Uh But I think that with Orban, the interesting thing that happens in this chapter is the beginning of the chapter is we hear him telling the story of his battle with the Aiel, now knowing the actual details of the battle. And he comes off looking absolutely horrible, right? He just looks like a pompous buffoon who is playing up his injuries to get as much, you know, uh, attention as he can and then the chapter ends with Fayil being like no I've been traveling with that guy for a while he's a drunk idiot but even when he's drunk he's one of the best fighters I've ever seen and I think that's a kind of like interesting reappraisal of a character who it's very easy to write off as a doofus after two chapters of being in a room with him and that's something I think Robert Jordan kind of surprised me with I don't know if I remembered that I, I think I had kind of remembered the dumb hunters from these scenes but at least one of them has some skill. Or so says the person who's just spent a bunch of time following him. That's uh, so, you know, we have to trust that. I think you're telling me you can trust that. But um, yeah, I think he was going to fight in the Aiel War, but then his dad's doctor said he had bone spurs. <laughs> so that's why he didn't have to fight in that. Um, I'm going to continue that comparison, which will probably alienate somebody who listens to us, but just say, this is the figure I put in my head. It's like, yeah. yep, uh, a blowhard who, you know, is all talk of being uh, a manly man, but then uh, does no such uh, courage or shows no such courage or skill. So you're right. So then the turn that, oh, he's actually not so bad is interesting. I, I did actually, I was like, if Elsie came back, this guy's coming back. Cause we, yeah. we make sure we, we give two memorable shout outs to him. And it just kind of felt like, you know, um, if, if he doesn't come back to parent, it seemed very easy that he will cross into somebody else's story in the back half of this book, because totally. then it's easy to have him show up and be doing something idiotic in the woods and people cross through and are endangered by it. So uh, yeah, not certainly not hoping for his redemption, but actually intrigued to see him come back again at some point. And as far as I think I'm concerned, and probably Robert Jordan is concerned, mission accomplished, right? If we can have three chapters where we get one new character in with the gang and get two new intriguing characters who are running off to do something else and will show up eventually later, that's great, right? That's building pieces that can then get worked into later in the story. And What I'm left with then is the end of this chapter is what I have noted as the name game, right? We start with Mandarb, which is laughed off because it's obviously a horse's name. And then we switch to um, Zareen, which we are told suits her. But when she is told it suits her, she gets mad about it. And then we end up at Fael, the name that was foretold. And when a character gives us three names in three paragraphs, I feel like there's something going on there with like who this character is and how they're portraying themselves. And so I'm curious what you thought of that kind of scene of a character we don't know very well choosing what to call themselves very deliberately. Uh, hidden past, right? Like, I, I think that's the most obvious answer. It's like there's something going on here where the fluidity of identity means that there's something hidden there or just that this person lacks definition. She seems a little sure of herself. So mm-hmm. I think 
it's more about making sure nobody can trace where she's from or who she really is than it is anything else. But I mean, Zareen, as she says, is the name that is hers. Uh, that's the how name I she was born that, with. Right? I think she says, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, but that's that's an interesting figure as well, right? A great hunter who doesn't seem interested in making a name for themselves. I mean, yeah, they she's she's more fluid than that. And, um, you know, when you have a fluid character, it's hard to hammer them down because you can't hammer a liquid. Take it to the bank. And if we're talking about hammering a liquid, choosing the blacksmith as the character to make that metaphor about just. A plus work. Uh, <laughs> I have nothing else oh, to say man. about these chapters. Yeah, I think we they were close fun. They were breezy. <laughs> they worked. We have three chapters coming next episode. So that is chapter 36, Daughter of the Night. Chapter 37, Fires in Kyrian. Yes, that's apparently how that city is pronounced now. And Chapter 38, Maidens of the Spear. And I have been talking up for a little while when this book starts to get going kind of at a really quick pace as opposed to a slow one. And I think we will start to see that transition just a little bit more in these next few chapters. And we'll get to do that. I'm not even going to let you say anything else, Greg. We will do that next time through the Glass Columns. Yay. So ends another episode of Through the Glass Columns. We thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time. This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.